All right, beloved, we are, uh, we are looking at what is specifically said about the thanksgiving that was offered up to God for the church of the Thessalonians, and I'm just drawing lessons from that for us. Last Sunday, we spent some time, and I think now maybe too much time after talking with my wife, um, analyzing some of the details. So not just that I went over, but that maybe a little too much time was given to the, to the details section. So forgive me for that. I just, I'm always trying to balance that out, trying to help you uh, understand the text. But we left off talking about the phrase, work of faith, found in verse 3. And that's where we're going to pick back up this morning. Did all the analyzing of the, the text, the structure, did that last week. Not going to do that this week. Going to focus on the Thanksgiving specifically. So let's do that. First Thessalonians 1, we'll, we'll read the three verses and we'll jump right in. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks, there's the thanksgiving, to God always for all of you, that is the church of the Thessalonians, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our Lord and Father, or our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So briefly, very briefly, as I explained to you last week, the word remembering, uh, it's a participle. It's just modifying the verb, we give thanks. In, uh, so the, ver- the, the word remembering in verse 3, it's telling us about the timing or the when of the thanksgiving that Paul is talking about in, in verse 2. So, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, while in prayer for God, that was the mode for the Thessalonian believers, were led to give thanks to God for them when, that's the timing, they happened to reflect upon the Thessalonians' work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Those three things, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope, you could just uh, put those in one big uh, bucket called Christian virtues. Christian virtues. Now, I talked briefly about the first Christian virtue last Sunday, the Thessalonians' work of faith. And I'm going to come back to that for a moment before we look at the other two, labor of love and steadfastness of hope. It is a work of faith, or as the NIV translates it, it is work produced by faith. So some of this is review from last week. So again, beloved, this is not just any work or deed or activity that Paul is referring to here. Paul and his missionary team are not simply remembering the Thessalonians' work, but rather it is the work that faith produced that they remembered, that they kept thinking about. The emphasis, as one scholar points out, the emphasis here is on the work that faith produces. That faith produces. It's that work. One uh, commentator puts it this way. It is work or activity 
that faith inspires or that springs from and is motivated by faith. And what is this faith that produced this work or activity that Paul refers to? What is it? Well, beloved, it was the Thessalonians' faith or trust in the gospel that was preached to them. Or, to say it another way, it was their continual, ongoing confidence in the good message concerning Jesus Christ that they had heard through Paul and his missionary team. That is the faith which produced the work to which Paul referred and regularly gave thanks to God for. With me? One writer, commentator, says this phrase, work of faith, you can understand it as relating to the whole Christian life as it is ruled and energized by faith the faith I just talked to you about. Not faith in just anything, but faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ and all the glorious truths of that faith. Forgiveness, righteousness, reconciliation, power from the Spirit, the hope of heaven, all of those truths. Freedom from the tyranny of sin, all of those truths. Called to serve a new master, all of those truths called no longer to live for yourself, but to live for him who died and gave himself for you. All of those truths. Those truths energizing the Christian life and creating and producing this work and activity. That is what Paul was giving thanks to God for, okay? So, beloved, stop. Here, we're drawing now lessons from that. Stop now and ask yourself this question. What is your life really ruled and energized by? What is it really ruled and energized by? Most of the time. By the gospel? By the truth of the gospel? Or by something else? We have a tendency to let other things crowd out the gospel in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. No? Yeah. We sang this song today. Come thou fount of every blessing. Beautiful song. Well, one of the lyrics in it goes like this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to that. I long for the day that that's no longer the case. I long for it. So what are we really ruled and energized by, beloved? This is important because the work that brought thanksgiving was not any work, not any kind of work, but the work that was ruled and energized 
by one's confidence in, belief in, adherence to the gospel. So let me just press. Are you energized and ruled by the gospel or peer pressure, as an example? Peer pressure will produce work, activity, but it is not God-glorifying work and activity. It does not have the sweet aroma of the gospel to it. And peer pressure, beloved, is not just a matter for teens. Huh? Adults can feel pressure from their peers as well to do this or to do that. In fact, is that what drives your, your service in the church? Just the pressure from others? Or is it your adherence to the gospel and the truths of the gospel? Is it, are you ruled or energized by the gospel or by the culture that you live in? Think about that. How many of us let the culture determine our work, our activity, or drive that, or motivate that, what we do? The Thessalonian Christians went against their culture. Absolutely against it. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what verse 9 says of chapter 1. They rebelled. No longer against God, but against their pagan culture. They were rebels for Christ, if you will. But rebels in a, a righteous way. Why did they do that? Why didn't they do what everyone else did? Just let the culture determine their life. Because they were believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is your life ruled and energized by, beloved? By the gospel or by shame? I say that because we used to live, our culture used to be more of a shame culture. So by that, and some people thought or would think that's good, that we're missing shame in our culture. Let me tell you why I don't think it's good to be ruled and energized by shame. It's very easy for me to show you this. So, so shame would be like this. Uh, you do what you do or you don't do this because you don't want the shame of doing that or not doing that. So if a culture will shame you for your unrighteousness, then you will act righteously to avoid the shame. Okay? You with me? That is not the same as gospel-driven righteousness. It's not the same. It's because you don't want to look bad or feel bad or feel the weight of everyone looking at you going, you don't like that. Okay? So in the end, if, if the culture... Has a, has a shame orientation, and, sh and what is shamed is unrighteousness, then there will be a, an external type of righteousness in the culture at, as it functions and operates. But even so, inside, they could still not be living for God in his glory, but living for themselves. So people bemoan the fact that we no longer have shame in our culture. We don't need shame. What we need is the gospel. 
Let me give you, let me tell you why. All right, if it's all about shame, okay, if that's what we should go back to, a shame culture, and by the way, first century culture was very much a shame culture. Often people would do or not do something because of shame. They didn't want to experience shame. So it's interesting, the secular world caught wind of that, the unreligious world, the unbelieving world, the anti-God world caught shame, you know, caught, understood that, so they said, we shouldn't have shame at all, but they're saying that for a whole different reason. That nothing should be shameful. You should be able to do what you want to do and no one should look down on you. They're saying that for a different reason because they want to sin. Okay? So we say, no, there should be shame. I say, no, there should be the gospel because let me tell you why. Our culture now has gone away from shame for unrighteousness and now we are being shamed for righteousness. If you make statements that the Bible makes about human sexuality, you are shamed in our culture now. How dare you? You are unloving. You are unkind. You are wicked, evil even. Right? So that's what you end up getting. If you, if you want a culture or you want a world that is controlled by shame, yeah, that's, I guess it works okay. It functions for a while until there's no shame or until it reverses and now you're shamed just for living for Jesus Christ. So shame is not the answer. The gospel is the answer. It always has been the answer. It remains the answer. Live in light of the gospel. And I don't care what the culture does or doesn't do or how it complies or doesn't comply. That and that alone is what empowers people to live for God's glory and bring him the honor that he is due. What is your life ruled and energized by, Christian? Is it shame? Is it self-preservation? It's antithetical to the, to the gospel. In other words, is, is, your, is, is what you do or don't do driven and motivated by, by preserving you, your life, your comfort, your stuff? Is that what drives you? Think about it. Ask yourself. Ask the Spirit of God to search your soul and reveal to you what is my life energized and ruled by? Is it the gospel, Christian? Because if it is, that will produce a work that is worthy of thanks to God. Is it by the gospel or by a YOLO worldview? You know, you only live once. What is it driven by? What is it energized by? Is it by the gospel or by the avoidance of pain and displeasure? Beloved, if it's by, if your life is driven by the avoidance of pain and displeasure, then you will likely not minister the gospel. You, you will not become a disciple maker. You will not enter into the fold and begin to do those things because with that comes pain. It's just how it is. With that comes discomfort and displeasure. So if that is what's important to you, Avoidance of pain, avoidance of displeasure. You will not do the work of faith. You'll do another work, but not a worthy work. 
Is it driven by the gospel or by the acceptance or approval of men? What is your life ruled or energized by? For, for many of us, and if we were to be honest, it's sometimes a variety of things. It depends on the day. So what we're, what we're looking to do is have more of our life, more of it, not ruled and energized by these other things, but ruled and energized by the one thing that God has called us to, faith in the gospel, an embrace of the gospel and all of those glorious truths. And when that life is captivated by that, it will produce a work, an activity that causes the men of God to give praise and give thanks to God for that good thing, because it is indeed a good thing. It honors God and accomplishes his good purposes in this world. And don't settle for inferior substitutes. This is what I was trying to explain last week, but I think I failed. Inferior substitutes are those things that they, they produce work and activity, and they may look similar to a work that is produced by faith. Okay? They may look similar, but they're not exactly the same, and we settle for that. And just one example is uh, the raising of children. And we just saw this, this theme here about what the focus should be in the, in the raising up of children. You're forming a soul. You're, you're, you're making an impact on a soul. Your, your focus should be the gospel and filling their little hearts and minds with it and leading them to him. Right? And if one does that, and if they respond, they will be obedient children. They understand these things, understand the role of leaders and what God has said and all. They'll, they'll be obedient to some degree as much as they can, little children can be, and as they grow older, obedient children. But, it, but you want it to be an obedience born out of the gospel. Okay? Now, when they're small and they can't even understand such things, you just need to train them in obedience, right? But, you know, they need to understand, I am in charge, you're not, you must be obedient. They need to understand how this whole process works. But as they grow older and their little minds can receive it, you want to fill them with the God. Why are we obedient? Why, are, why is the structure set up this way? And why will you need Jesus, my little baby girl, my little baby boy, to truly live in obedience to God? You're going to need him. You're going to see it because it's impossible without him. You want to feed that into them, right? But we settle for inferior substitutes. And so we say, listen, I just want obedience. So we focus only on external conformity. That's it. Not the heart, not the gospel. And why do we do that? Shame. Because if you've got unruly kids and other people see that, they look at you like, what is your problem? Don't you parent? So we don't like the way that feels. So instead of doing the hard work or the gospel, we just say, we need immediate compliance. I will kill you if you do not. Listen to me! Come here. Come here. I love you. I love you. 
shame, embarrassment, the approval of men, all of those things I was just talking about become the thing that moves our work, produces our work, our activity, and how we handle our children when it should be, it should be the gospel. You get me? So you could see someone who has obedient children and go, wow, they must be great Christian parents. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, for that matter, where's my dog? That one, the other one left. She was always the trouble one, trouble one, I'm telling you right now. That one was uh, a compliant child. So just growing up, that's how she was. She gave us very little trouble. Because I'm a great dad? Nope. That's just, I, we could get into some reasons why she probably did that. That was how she was wired. It wasn't necessarily because she was giving glory to God or anything. It's just, that's how she functioned, right? Found it went easier for her maybe. I don't know. But you might look at that and go, wow, look at that. Look at that work you're doing in her life. Really? Because she's just compliant, <laughs> you know? But that doesn't necessarily mean I was feeding her the gospel, and that's how, why that obedience was pouring out. You understand? Don't settle for inferior substitutes to the gospel. Labor of love. Number two. Number two Christian virtue, labor of love. Work of faith, labor of love. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love. The NIV translates it your labor prompted by love. Or the note in one of uh, another Bible translation has a little note that says, motivated by love is the, uh, the idea. Prompted by love. This is labor prompted by, motivated by love, all right? The Greek noun translated labor implies difficulty and toil. This goes beyond just work. This is difficult work, okay? And this is, this is not just work that is, that is done by a worker, Okay? So, you know, so like, because you like when you go to the mechanic and he gives you the invoice down at the bottom, it'll say parts and labor, right, Steve? Um, that labor may have been difficult, it may not. It's really just, labor can be used just to refer to work in general. It's the work that went into fixing this or that. Yeah? No. This word, labor, here in the Greek, and labor, our English word, can also mean this, and it does, it's a good word to use here. It means hard or strenuous work. Labor here could be understood in a similar way as when we use the word in referring to a particular section of a hospital where babies are born. We call that labor and delivery, right? That's not just work, beloved. That's hard and strenuous work. So labor there is appropriate. Or as someone with bad knees might say, I labored to walk up and down the stairs. Do you understand what they are saying when they, when they say that? That was hard, man. That was hard. Webster's defines labor. One way to define it is to exert one's powers of body and mind, especially with painful or strenuous effort. Okay? So work may be... Pleasant and stimulating, as one commentator says, but labor implies, implies toil that is strenuous and sweat-producing. You with me so far? So what is behind this labor? 
It's causing Paul and his team to give thanks to God for what is behind the strenuous work that Paul and his companions witness in the life of the believing Thessalonians, those believing in the gospel, driven by the gospel, motivated by the gospel, transformed by the gospel. What is it? What's behind it? That's right, babe, it's love. Were you just saying, I love you, or were you just telling me the answer to the question? I'll take either one. Love! (laughs) But we must be careful to define this word correctly. If you were to ask someone on the street, right? Oh, my goodness. To just define the word love, you will no doubt get a variety of answers. But those answers would likely fall very short of what the underlying Greek word here means, translated love. As one scholar points out, the Greek word here, which is you probably are familiar with it if you've been around a while in the Christian circles, agape is a word rarely used for love before the Christian era. But in the New Testament, it has become the most characteristic term for love. This concept of love is is directed toward another in spite of their unworthiness and does something for him in a tangible way. It does. It does. It works. It doesn't just sit back and feel. It does. Such love is exemplified by God and becomes a possibility for us, for humanity, through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's the only way this type of love is possible. Another writer just points out that this love is part of the fruit of the Spirit, produced in those led by the Spirit. Galatians Galatians 5.22. You've probably heard me uh, say before that a good and simple definition of this biblical love is it is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. I like that definition. So, beloved, it is this agape Holy Spirit-enabled, self-sacrificing, caring, and purely seeking the highest good of another, even though they are unworthy of it. It is that kind of love that drove and sustained the Thessalonians' labor or their hard or strenuous work for the Lord and for his church and in the world on his behalf. One writer says that the labor prompted by this love, it knows no limits and will go beyond the point of normal human capability. Yeah. Because it's spirit-produced, beloved. It's Holy Spirit-empowered. Again, making sure we understand what this word is and what it's not, another commentator says this. This love is not romantic love. There's another word for that in the scriptures. Nor the love of personal affection and warmth drawn forth by the attractiveness and desirableness of the object of love. There's another word for that in the scriptures. But rather, agape love is distinctly, this distinctly Christian love, the love that springs from an unconquerable goodwill and persistent desire for the welfare 
the benefit, the good benefit of the one loved. Such love found its supreme expression on Calvary. What is he talking about? Yeah, the cross of Christ, his death, his sacrifice, his love. That's where it's ultimately expressed. This is the power of the gospel in one's life. As we embrace it, as we recall it, as we proclaim it, as we meditate on it, as we delight in it, we remember these things. The love of our Savior. We see it. It's there. That's the power of the gospel. In a Christian's life, as he embraces it, he finishes by saying, such a divinely imparted and sacrificial love prompted the toil of the Thessalonians. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking that the phrase labor of love, think about this, that phrase labor of love is generally understood or defined in our world not like I just talked about it, but as hard work that you do because you enjoy it and not because you're going to get money for it or you know, necessarily praise for it or something like that. Like you might hear someone say, they go, why are you doing this? You know, it's like a nonprofit. They're not taking any money for it. They're doing it for free. It's just a labor of love. And the way that's understood is it's because I, I love it. See, that's not what Paul is talking about. It makes me feel happy. That's why I do it. Fine. That's fine. Great. I just don't want you to get confused. This is a, a, a toil. This is hard, strenuous work that is coming from this agape love, this self-sacrificing, caring commitment that cares not about you. It's not thinking about you. That's why it's self-sacrificing, but it's thinking about the other. It does for the benefit of the other. And that kind of love drives a work that Paul calls labor. You with me? Now, as with work of faith, that is, it isn't just the manifestation of work in the lives of the Thessalonians that caused the giving of thanks to God, but rather, it was work that Christian faith produced, the gospel, faith in the gospel, so it is also with labor of love. It wasn't just labor or hard or strenuous work, but rather it was labor motivated, prompted, sustained by Christian love that Paul and his missionary team fondly remembered and led to their thanksgiving to God for the Thessalonians. It was that kind of labor. So what lessons can we draw from this? Well, I mean, something simple. Is your life devoid of any labor for the Lord and his beloved church? Devoid, not present, not there. And if it is, and you, you're claiming to be a Christian, 
I would, I would ask you to think through that. One's life might be devoid of labor for the Lord, enforced church, the church he loves, that the scriptures call us to love. It might be devoid because you lack the love that prompts the labor. And you lack that love because you lack the spirit who empowers you with that, that love. Something to think about. There are, there are so many people, beloved, claiming to be Christian or even thinking wrongly that they are. They have no evidence, no biblical evidence for it in their life. So we should, and I do, challenge them to think because it would not be good for them to just continue in their deception, self-deception, if you will, attending church and doing this or that, and then wake up in hell one day when they pass from this life. So there's that. We should consider such things. Are these things true of my life in any way? There's no labor at all. Is there no love? There's no love. Is there no spirit? If there's no spirit, you're not born again. You've never embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, not truly, not sincerely, not genuinely. You've never been saved. So come to grips with that and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and call upon him. Repent of your sin and call upon him. Turn from your deception and call upon him that you might be saved for real. And if you can say you do labor for the Lord, ask yourself, is your labor driven by Christian love or by something else? Huh? Is it driven by agape love or by a desire to feel better about your sin? Or be relieved of your guilt for your rebellion towards God that you have yet not repented of? What am I talking about? Oh, people will go the distance they will toil. They will sweat. But it's not always a matter of love. It may be because it's just helping them deal with the sin and guilt they feel that they're unwilling to repent of. So they feel a little bit better if they work really hard. But that is not gospel love. That is not gospel labor. That is self-centered labor. Self-focused, cheap substitute, inferior substitute. You get me? That does not honor God. See, it's, and I don't know, and you don't know. You see people doing stuff, working hard, sweating it out for Christ, and, and working hard in the ministry, but why are they doing it? What's driving that labor? What's driving that toil? They know, or maybe they haven't even stopped and asked themselves. They're just going through the motions. But if it's not agape love, they need to repent. 
of whatever else it is. Because it's this love that glorifies God. It's this love that we've been called to manifest through the power of the Spirit in our lives. It is this toil produced by this love that is sweet and beautiful and actually accomplishes God's purposes. Ah. Is it driven by agape love, your labor, if you have it, or by desire to be well thought of? Same kind of thing with work, right? Sometimes people do what they do and work really hard because they want others to think well of them. That needs to be repented of. That's not labor of love. Are you with me? You see? Trying to take this thing and get it right here where we live. Your family. Is it agape love that's driving your, your service to your family? Or something else, right? To the church, to your friends, to the lost. Is it driven by agape love or is it means to get something you want in return? That's not agape love, and that's how many marriages function. Unfortunately. They'll toil and labor, yeah, because they're looking to get something in return. Yeah, I'll do. I'll work hard for you. You better give me what I want. That doesn't honor the Lord. It stinks, and it'll stink up that marriage. That's not agape love. Is it driven by agape love or a desire to feel important or good about yourself? These are the questions you should ask yourself. Let me tell you this. Let me, let, me, let me also say this. Let me ask you this question. Is your labor, if it's there, you see, and you said yes, is your labor for the Lord, for his church, is it driven by agape love, motivated by agape love, sustained by agape love, or is it done only if others appear to think well of, or to help others think well of you, and only if they give you thanks. I know, I stuck my tongue out, that was weird, but listen, this is, listen, this one's, this one's close to me, okay? This is a test for you, this is a test for you. You want to know if your labor for the Lord is driven by agape love or by something else, something self-motivated, something towards you? Well, if you don't get the proper thanks, you're done. Or if things are a little go a little rough for you, you're done. You know, like someone in the ministry treats you a little rough because that's what sinners, even saved ones, do. They still sin. So if it's not driven by agape love, then it's driven by something else. It could be because you want to feel good about yourself. You're ministering, but now this person is causing you not to feel good about yourself. They're not even thanking you. They're treating you like junk, Right? I'm out of here. I'm out. I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. Ding, 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 ding. Not agape love. Not agape love. Because if it was agape love driving that labor, then listen, all right, they're being, yeah. Yeah, okay, I'm not getting thanks, but I'm not doing this for thanks. I'm doing this for what? For the good of the other. It's a self-sacrificing, caring commitment. 
that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one love. So if you're in children's ministry, why are you there? I don't know. Why? Because they asked me to and I can't get out of it. Okay, <laughs> that may be, that could be. But reevaluate. Ask God to, to empower you. Trust in that power that you have from the Spirit of God. Help me to love these children. I mean, this, so if you've got some parents that come in and they're, you know, and they're all over, you're like, okay, it's all right. But still, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for the highest good of this one. So yeah, you want to you wanna give me some stuff? Go ahead, go ahead. Or the leader of a ministry doesn't thank you on the way out. You're like, yeah, okay. That may be nice to get a thank you once in a while, but I don't need it. I don't need it because this is agape love driving this. This isn't me driving this. This isn't my desire to feel good or to avoid pain or displeasure. You with me? That's why this kind of thing, agape love driving this labor, is un- out, of this, it's out of this world. It's unbelievable. It's what makes the church unique. Because anywhere else you go, they'd be like, I'm done with that. But unfortunately, even in the church, we are often not driven by agape love. We're driven by these other things. And that creates the mess. Yeah. <sighs> Finally. A steadfastness of hope. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Steadfastness of hope. Some other translations have the word endurance instead of steadfastness. So they say endurance of hope. They're both good words. If I could, I'd use them both because they both help get at the underlying Greek word. Steadfastness and endurance. Let me explain what I'm talking about. And let me say this. The source as it was with the other virtues, the source of the Thessalonians' steadfastness or endurance, it was their hope, all right? So the source of that labor was the love. The source of this work was the faith. The source of their steadfastness was this hope. Specifically, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was steadfastness, endurance caused or inspired by a hope in him. You with me? Okay, so steadfastness, these words again, these English words we use to try to, to define in our language what that Greek underlying word is. The, the word steadfastness means firm, unwavering, unswerving, immovable. Unwavering in what? Well, in unwavering and firm and immovable in living out their Christianity, in living for Christ. That's the idea, not just you know, taking a stand for Christ. Not moved, even as the world tries to move you, even as your own sin tries to move you. Even if the government tries to move you, you don't move. You don't move. Steadfast. In fact, the, the furthest we can go back and see this word being used, our earliest record of the word steadfastness, it was used in a battle context to describe warriors who stood their ground. Yeah. Even in the face of death, blood, pain, stood their ground, steadfast. Good word. Endurance, that English word that some translations use, the word means the power of enduring or continuing an unpleasant or difficult situation without giving way. 
endurance. Good word. Scholars point out that the Greek noun translated steadfastness or endurance, depending on your translation, it points to this heroic endurance with which the Christian faces the difficulties which beset him in the world. Heroic endurance. It's good. One Bible scholar puts it this way. It is a combination of heroic endurance and brave constancy. So it's this idea of steadfastness and endurance are together that faces the various obstacles, trials, and persecutions that may befall the believer in his conflict with the inward and outward world. So not only on the outside we have conflict, but we've got conflict going right on in here in the heart, right? Yeah, yeah. The persecution heaped upon the Thessalonian believers, which we'll get to as we move through the letter, gave ample opportunity for the exercise of the steadfast endurance. It is that very endurance that Paul remembered and his missionary team remembered. And when they remembered the Thessalonians and they were giving thanks to God and praying for them, they gave thanks to God for that specifically. The steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this brave constancy and heroic endurance was not intrinsic in these believers or uh, something unique. Like, these weren't like super believers, beloved. Like, you know, like there's believer, then there's super believer. There's believer, and they had this steadfast endurance because of their hope. That's why they had it. The same hope every Christian should have. You know? Like, we hold these people up and go, oh, there's something special. They're actually just Christians living out the gospel. <laughs> Like you're waiting for some supercharge. You don't, you, you have it. If you have the spirit of God and you have the gospel and you wouldn't have the spirit without having the gospel, you have it. You have supercharge. You know what I mean? You got it to live this stuff out, this incredible, wonderful stuff. Stuff's a terrible word to use, but it's all I could come up with at the moment. Hope here, as in other places in the scripture, does not mean wishful thinking, but rather it refers to a certain expectation of what will come about in the future. Okay? Remember that. You know, as the hurricane's approaching and everything in Florida, people are saying, I hope, I hope we make it. That's not the same hope in the scriptures. That is wishful. They're hoping. They don't know. When the Bible talks about hope, it is a confidence that something will come to pass, as John Piper says, because God has promised it will come to pass. It's built upon the reliability of our reliable God and his word. Hope. Confidence. He says it. It's going to happen just like he said it. You with me? Okay. All right, we have gospel hope. We have gospel hope. We have hope, as 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 says, that is rooted in, tied to, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is in what he will yet do. Remember, confidence is a, hope is a confidence in what will occur or take place in the future. This hope is tied to Christ, so... This is hope in what Christ will yet do. What is that? What has been promised? That he would come. 
again. It is his triumphant return. Not just come, but come triumphantly. Come to deal with this world and set things right. Come to lift up his people and honor them and reward them for their labor of love and work of faith. That's the hope. It's that hope. As one writer points out, all Christians have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, a persevering anticipation of seeing his future glory and receiving their eternal inheritance. It's that very hope that Paul will address in this letter of his imminent return to the earth as was promised. He's coming again, and when he comes again, he's coming in power and glory, coming to set up his kingdom, coming for his people, coming to unleash his judgment on this hostile world that continues to live in rebellion against our God. That's their hope. It is a hope that Jesus is coming back and that he will reign. And as one writer said, and he will right every wrong. He will right every wrong, beloved. He will. No government will, because they're human. He will. And he will reward every good deed done in his name. He will. So, you know, if you don't get your reward here, you know, which is what? A thank you from someone for your hard work. What is that anyway? I mean, that's nice. Don't get me wrong. It's pleasant. Okay? But it's passing. The reward Christ gives is eternal. And it's from him, which is way better. And he don't miss nothing. You know, we often focus on, yeah, he keeps track of the bad. He keeps track of all that's done for his glory as well. He keeps really good track. He has a perfect record on both sides. And he will reward his people appropriately, rightly, correctly. Lessons for us. Listen, the Christians in Thessalonica were able to endure and stand their ground in the face of various difficulties because they were inspired by the hope that the gospel had brought them. Their hope in Jesus Christ. You know, because we just, we truncate the gospel so often because we don't have time. So, you know, I mean, at minimal, it's Jesus Christ died for your sins. Yeah, he did. That's true. That's good and wonderful and glorious, but there's so much more. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He came to purchase you that you might be a citizen in his coming kingdom. My glory to God. You're going to be a part of this righteous kingdom. That's the gospel, beloved. That is included in the gospel. Kingdom citizens is what we are through faith in Jesus Christ. And ain't, ain't no any kind of kingdom we've ever seen on this world or in this world. The farther I go, the weirder I get in my language. But you understand what I'm saying. It's the kingdom of kingdoms because it's the king of kings. That's our hope. That's what's been secured for us. So listen, it was that, it was knowing that all wrongs would be righted and that rewards would be dealt out by their Lord and Savior who would say, well done, my good and faithful servant, and we will see him face to face, oh my. 
and be glorified and not have to deal with all this mess anymore internally, externally. Come on now. So with that as the focus, with that as our confidence, that steadfastness of hope, that's what allowed them to stand firm and endure the stuff, the junk, the pushback, the persecution, the problems, the challenges. That was it. So, when you, my brothers and sisters, allow other things of this world to crowd out the gospel, when you don't make it the center of your life, then you lose the very thing that will enable you to boldly and consistently stand for Christ and persevere in the Christian faith in the midst of trials and persecutions and various obstacles you will face. You start to see why we're so crazy about the gospel here. I mean, Tim said it earlier. Oh, it saves. It is the power of the gospel to save. But that same gospel sustains and empowers us to live for the Lord. It's that same gospel that I look to over and over again that will move me to give myself away for another. It's that same gospel, beloved, that tells me you are free from sin, Jeremy. You don't have to say yes to it anymore, even more so I've called you to say yes to me. It's that same gospel that says, I gave myself for you, Jeremy, and for the church, and I've called you to do the same. You see? Don't move from the gospel, beloved. I can, I can assure you, all the problems, the marriage problems, the kids' problems, You find an answer to that in the gospel. That's where you need to go. And I would say, don't go there. Stay there. Because that's another habit of ours. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gospel goes up on the shelf, and when I need it, I'll go get it. Then you aren't prepared. Live in it. Soak it up. I'll finish with this. We, I've mentioned this book before. It's just a daily gospel devotional back there on the table. Uh, what's it called? I forgot all of a sudden. New Morning Mercies. Daily Bread's good too. Daily Bread's good too. New Morning Mercies. Every day, you just read this passage, gospel-saturated, soaking in the gospel, thinking about the gospel. Goodness gracious, we need it, beloved. I got stuff coming in my head all the time. Hurricanes, nuclear war, blah, 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 401k, blah, 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 blah. Ah! I need gospel. I need gospel. Huh? You need, you need gospel, Christian? You'll never stop needing it. Thank God for it. Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, we are so grateful to be able to come before you. Make our prayer requests known. Father, I just ask this simple thing. 
Work in our hearts and our minds, Father, to, to let this message today penetrate us and speak to us as appropriate. Father, may we be transformed. May, as, as Tim say, we don't come here just to come, but we come expecting to hear from you, God, because it is here that we look at your word together and explore the treasures of it. Father, help us to do that not just today, but tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. Oh, how we need it, and we're so thankful for it. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that that means. And may we not take it for granted or stick it on a shelf, but Father, oh, may we make it the center of our lives. If we do, it'll be a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope that will be ours. Christian virtues that honor you and glorify you and accomplish your good purposes. Help us, Lord. Oh, you know we are weak. We are weak, but you are strong. In Christ's name, amen.